0: Welcome to Cybersecurity On Call, where we discuss the trends, get perspectives, and find tips for cybersecurity professionals. I'm your host, TJ Lair from Cloudera. On call today will be Patrick Tucker, the technology editor for Defense One. But first, let's look at what's happening in the world of cybersecurity. As cyber attacks continue to increase across the world, it has become more important for countries to implement cyber operations from a defensive and offensive perspective to protect national secrets and their citizens. An Arizona State University research paper showed just how global this problem is when they discovered that if hackers discussed a zero-day exploit on the dark web in Chinese, the likelihood of a hacker exploiting the exploit was 9%. If it was in English, the likelihood rose to 13. And if it was in Russian, the likelihood rose to 40%. This demonstrates just how global these adversaries are. However, it's not always easy for government frontline cyber operators to deploy tactics they need to in order to protect national secrets and citizens from these attacks. This is actually a conversation happening right now in Congress. The US Cyber Command is trying to cut through the red tape and offer their operators the flexibility they need to complete their missions. To discuss the nation-state cyber operations, we have invited Patrick Tucker to the show. Patrick is the technology editor for Defense One. He's also the author of The Naked Future, What Happens in a World That Anticipates Your Every Move. Previously, Tucker was deputy editor for The Futurist for nine years. Tucker has written about emerging technology in MIT Technology Review, BBC News Magazine, along with many other publications. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Great, so let's just jump right into the conversation. Uh, Looking back on 2017, in in your opinion, uh, what was the the most noteworthy uh, nation-state cyber hack that you saw?
1: Uh, Well, I think that attribution of WannaCry to North Korea and really the entire WannaCry thing uh, is is probably the most uh, significant, not only in terms of impact and reach, but also in terms of the change that it represents in the way the U.S. government and others around the world actually deal with these things. Uh, And and, uh, that change is uh, represented by the decision to actually say, this was North Korea. That's something that happened just last week, even though everyone sort of knew it was North Korea before that. And and that's hugely important because uh, there's this big dialogue, you could call it an argument that's very internal, that happens when uh, a government is faced with the prospect, like the United States government is faced with the prospect of saying, this other country did something to us or did something wrong. It moves the entire discussion away from uh, that very kind of safe discussion about cybersecurity that we like having, where it's just sort of you have defenses and your adversary is just this unnamed, un, like, unfaced group that's out there that's represented in, uh, you know, um, uh, common, like, the mass press by like a, a, a silly graphic with like a guy wearing a hood and, and it doesn't look like anything. And this shifts it to a conversation that has to happen when one government sees that another government is actually doing something uh, that uh, imperils a lot of users, possibly uh, imperils economic activity, or possibly imperils like national security. Uh, and the U.S. government for a long time has, been, uh, has shown a willingness to do that, to kind of name and shame and to attribute attacks, but it's generally pretty slow. Uh, to do so, and, and this has always had like uh, a lot of people frustrated. So um, by coming out and saying this attack was definitely North Korea um, and, and suggesting that that's going to be the way forward, that we're going to have more uh, overt statements of attribution on uh, attacks of that scale, presumably sooner, then, then that's going to mark a significant shift in the way uh, we all deal with these sorts of uh, attacks. Because once you know the government says this is nation-state on nation-state activity, then it moves it into a whole another realm of importance and consequence, and shifts it from being something that's just like a CIO has to has to battle against unseen adversaries, uh, like on their own by employing best practices. So that's uh, I think that that's probably the most significant one. Uh, 2016, of course, is. Uh, uh, also, <laughs> uh, uh, w- uh, was a watershed moment for, for uh, nation-state activity because, of course, you had Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear, um, and their revealed activity against the DNC and John Podesta, uh, which we're only talking about because, of course, they actually operationalized that uh, data that they stole, and that was sort of a watershed sort of moment there. Um, so, it, it, but that's not 2017. So following from that, uh, I think the second most important uh, would be the uh, attacks on the Macron campaign in France by the same actors, with the difference being that uh, because of what happened in 2016, uh, the Macron campaign was actually ready for that. And they went about creating uh, a series of what we now know are basically honeypots, like false email accounts, with the hopes of actually attracting Uh, the same adversaries to then steal information and then that information once stolen from these honeypot accounts from these sort of this variety of fake email accounts that the Macron campaign set up then that could be used to immediately discredit all the information that was stolen because you can say clearly we we set this up to be this way and that was a real uh sort of important moment i think also in terms of tactics The uh, Defense One, actually back in in January, first broke the story that uh, the FSB through uh, the um, actor that is today known as either Fancy Bear or APT29 was targeting the French election, uh, not Macron uh, specifically because he hadn't yet risen to be the the primary contender against Le Pen, but basically every candidate that wasn't Le Pen was being targeted by uh, Kremlin-backed actors. And uh, so the, the point is that, you know, these enormous uh, kind of earth shifting attacks uh, are actually not that sophisticated if you can acknowledge that you're facing uh, a nation state adversary and you can develop uh, uh, just simple tactics and procedures to uh, assuming what they're going to do and then uh, discrediting what they do after they steal your information. So that's, I think those two events, both the Macron campaign's uh, prediction of uh, being attacked by the FSB and uh, the US government naming uh, North Korea as the, as the primary culprit behind WannaCry, these are uh, really important in terms of how governments in the future are going to actually respond to nation state cyber attacking, which is to, to name it for what it is sooner. Uh, And and then develop tactics around uh, uh, that that shield information from uh, the damaging effects of having that information revealed in a way that's uh, embarrassing, which is the Macron campaign, uh, or potentially just um, fixing gaps sooner, which is something that the U.S. uh, uh, different vendors around the world needed to do with, uh, with WannaCry
0: those were all really, really good examples. And my mind was just racing. You, you brought up a very interesting point, which is, you know, when you think about a kinetic attack that happens uh, within the, the borders of the U S within, you know, days, you, you know, the responsible organization behind it, but these cyber attacks have a way of, you know, always being that, that, you know, uh, stock image that we're all used to that you, you alluded to, right? The, the cloaked figure with a dark face. So, you know, once, once people start to uh, point fingers or not point fingers, uh, have physical proof that certain nation states are behind uh, some of these larger attacks that are significantly influencing um, everything that we do within our country, uh, it's going to be uh, the question of, so what, what's next? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, how, how should someone react to these types of attacks? Is it you know, I don't want to go so far as—is this a beginning of war, or is this you know just something that uh, the the global international committees need to start thinking about as well, just from a, a global perspective and not just a national perspective?
1: Yeah, yeah, but and then and that's the thing too, because no one wants to, you know, actually commit young men and women to uh, you know acts of of uh, nation state like kinetic violence where you have to go and shoot at people and hold territory over another country like breaking into a computer system and stealing territory like 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 stealing data you know like that's like virtual territory like no one wants to do that so you have to think about Uh, We we need, uh, on one hand, like a global conversation, but also uh, within our government, a national conversation about what are are the appropriate responses. And it's something that uh, lawmakers have been pushing for for a long time. It's something that defense folks say that they've already worked out internally. And so if you watch, like, uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee and John McCain hammer, like, DOD officials, for years, John McCain would say, what is our policy of uh, attacking or responding to Stuff like this, and you could just name any major uh, attack that you know in that category, the OPM breach, etc. Uh, and DoD officials would say, Well, we can we have a whole variety of responses, we're not going to say which one we'll use at any time, but they're economic. Uh, some of them uh, are information based. If it's serious enough, we might resort to kinetic uh, a- a- effects, which basically means you know, you start shooting. Uh, but uh, we won't we don't want to tell them what we're going to do. So that solution uh, just doesn't intimidate anybody anymore. you know, like that idea that like you won't even know how serious this will get if you do this. like that's no longer a credible threat against really any adversary anymore who wants to to uh, attack us. Um, the but this is this is an interesting jumping off point for this question of like, well, who are these different nation-state adversaries, and how do they, how do they differ both in terms of their approach and then what they do? Um, and that's where uh, you know you see this this variety of of, of different tactics and different capabilities. Uh, in many ways, China's probably the most capable cyber adversary that the U.S. or anyone in the world is facing. Uh, but the way that they operate when they conduct offensive cyber activity is uh, really close to the way you know we can think of conventional espionage. Uh, they don't like to be caught, and that means that they, uh, what they'll do consistently, what we know from, from FireEye in particular, which is a, a cybersecurity company that has long had great window into um, the uh, uh, Chinese People's Army's uh, cyber activity – What they'll do is they'll establish presence on a network, uh, they'll establish presence within a target, and they'll just uh, steal data uh, consistently for years in very low volume uh, just so that they they don't expose themselves. And that's always been a really high priority for the Chinese when they get on a system, when they uh, infiltrate a network, or when they conduct any sort of cyber-offensive activity, is not to reveal their presence there. And then when that happens, then they'll change tactics, and, and you'll see uh, uh, a lot of very fancy maneuvering to uh, cover tracks and perhaps to you know destroy uh, left behind residual or artifact data that can might point to uh, China's being involved. Uh, but that's this is part of the reason why when the U.S. government was faced with uh, an actor like uh, Fancy Bear, uh, they weren't sure what to do. Because the presumption had long been that, uh, you know, James Clapper, the former director of national intelligence, used to say, Hey, look, this is just espionage activity. It's neither legal nor illegal, and we certainly do it too. So uh, just understand that it's a a sort of modern fact of life that every so often a country like China is going to try very hard and possibly succeed in stealing a bunch of information, but it doesn't mean that uh, it shouldn't rise to the level of like a real threat. And then you saw. Uh, a different approach that's taken by uh, Russian actors. And that's different in a couple of ways. First, uh, the uh, even though the activity has FSB or GRU fingerprints on it, and these are the two military intelligence services uh, that backed Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear, uh, they're never alone in that. It's always like this uh, kind of pastiche of There's also hackers that they brought in that were contractors. Sometimes they're not even located physically in Russia. Uh, They rely on networks or services or infrastructure or server infrastructure that's also often located outside of continental Russia. Um, And uh, the way the uh, FSB and the GRU will operate is, again, they'll they'll go out, they'll find mercenaries, they'll find contractors, and uh, those guys will work with the FSB to achieve specific things. And the FSB will approach, as well as just the Kremlin in general, just Moscow in general, will approach offensive cyber operations from this much more bold and, I think it's safe to say, much more experimental point of view. So they really like seeing what what they can do and get away with. They just don't look at it from the same risk-averse perspective as the Chinese. Like the Chinese, like you don't want to disrupt multi-trillion dollar trade relationships with the united states and the rest of the world by disclosing your activity right so their 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 perspective is is uh very risk averse that risk aversion does not exist in nearly the same way when you're talking about uh russian actors and that's part of why we saw that uh you know that statistic that you just mentioned at the top of the show where if a vulnerability is found and uh the hackers that are talking about it are, are working on a forum that where Russian is the language, meaning that they're, they're Russian. then the chances of them actually using it are exponentially higher than if those, uh, if that same forum was in Chinese and the hackers, you were dealing with were Chinese hackers because, uh, you get to experiment with in Russia. And it's, it's, what's interesting is that that has so much to do with the way the entire thing is set up. Um, so if you're somebody that's doing work on behalf of the Kremlin, you kind of have carte blanche to attack any target that you want, to steal money, to uh, run ransomware scams, certainly to run phishing scams, which is their uh, sort of favorite. Uh, so, but at some point, you're going to get a, a call from the FSB who will say, hey, what you're doing is against international law, and that means that now you have to do some work for us. Uh, and uh, yeah, you see this over and over again and you see it really strong. I know it's, it's a weird cross between hiring a mercenary and, and it's kind of like indentured servitude too. Uh, so uh, Shadi Boltoy, which was this little hacker, hacker collective that was based in Moscow, uh, and a couple of different members have now been sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department and several other members have been arrested and disappeared in Russia. That's their story, okay? Like, these were guys, they were basically a nice group of, of young uh, coders and hackers that, uh, you know, were uh, did, like, a, a lot of interesting, very above-board work. Uh, they, uh, a couple of them had a very consistent president at DEFCON for a few years. Um, and they wound up a bunch of them wound up doing work, probably somewhat reluctantly, for the Kremlin. That then went into what we now understand as Operation Grizzly Step, is what we now, according to the DHS, it's their name for it. Uh, the entire 2016 hacker campaign. So they were kind of forced to do it. And when it blew up, several of them were arrested. Some of them were sanctioned. Uh, and there, this goes against this notion of like the FSB guys being these guys and you know, fuzzy Russian army hats sitting like, you know, in a bunker or something. It's much more entrepreneurial. It's much more of a kind of like um, a business uh, uh, and uh, coercion uh, arrangement that the Kremlin has with folks actually all around the world, possibly including folks in the U S but mostly there'll be folks working in, in the Russian language.
0: All these hackers are out there and imagine if you get caught and now you're working for the Russian government because, you know, they know all your deepest, darkest secrets. So it's, it's turning all these uh, hackers on the dark web uh, to, to their cause. And you're talking and I was having flashbacks to, you know, Mr. Robot, uh, the TV show, uh, when you're talking about the Chinese and all that stuff. So it's, it's it's scary uh, and intimidating and, and I I have a question for you, Patrick. You know, as as a okay. citizen of the U.S., you know, what what's the current state of cyber operations? Are we are we protected? Do we have a good strategy in terms of defense and offense uh, for to to protect U.S. citizens and our national secrets?
1: It depends on what level you're talking about. So, in terms of large scale national systems, uh, I think that there's a lot more protection than you would think. Uh, We've got air gapping uh, that's been very, very good. The the Pentagon has finally figured out uh, how to be a lot more impervious to phishing scams. Um, Our biggest threat there, in terms of stuff that's incredibly important uh, and well-kept, remains insider threats. So somebody from the NSA, possibly a contractor, somebody from within the Defense Department absconding with a whole bunch of stuff at leaving and going somewhere else, Uh, as opposed to just, you know, uh, gymnasiums full of, like, crack Chinese uh, coders shooting ones and zeros at, like, you know, uh, defense department firewalls on SIPRNet or Nippernet, which are the really hard closed networks. Like, that doesn't happen. So on that level, uh, I think we actually are very well protected. In terms of uh, other pieces of Infrastructure, enterprises that touch national security or touch our everyday lives in terms of uh, the vulnerability there. Um, you know, it's it's this huge uh, variety that you see. Um, but one of the things that I think is so fascinating about uh, the Equifax hack and also WannaCry is that um, you know, and this this really sort of like hammers home uh, like important lessons for everybody. At the very beginning of WannaCry, the NSA was getting a lot of flack for, uh, because they had originally discovered that vulnerability that was uh, exploited. Um, and there's a lot of discussion, especially last week, as, as the NSA, uh, the White House made the decision to formally attribute it to North Korea.
0: Yeah, wasn't this the, the WannaCry uh, leaked from that uh, NSA WikiLeaks uh, program do you remember that where, where Wikileaks guy hand on a handle on all of the different NSA attack techniques and wanna cry was wrapped up in there
1: the way WikiLeaks presented it to embarrass the US government yeah but here's the thing yeah. and, and the WikiLeaks and Microsoft have both been uh, on like uh, of one mouth on this. they uh, won't comment formally. very good reporting has come out saying that uh, the NSA disclosed that to Microsoft back in January and Microsoft issued a patch in March. <laughs> So it should never have been this thing that crippled a gazillion uh, different operating systems all around the globe. It was disclosed in January with a patch in March. And here's the other thing that uh, is so fascinating about the way all of these states actually work, especially Russia. Uh, Most of the stuff that they exploit, most of the bugs, uh, the vulnerabilities that they exploit, are already in the National Vulnerabilities Database. So it's not like NIST uh, is getting, uh, you know, it's butt handed to it by like, crack Russian hackers. It's actually that just CIOs all around the world don't have the time or the bandwidth to, you know, implement uh, fixes or changes or, or, or um, solutions to every vulnerability that exists in the national vulnerabilities database that they might be vulnerable to. They don't actually use zero days a ton. I mean they have them, but uh, you don't you use those sparingly even if you're uh, uh, a government like Russia that is uh, really bold with what you use. So that that's really an important point. To be safe from even like the um, most determined nation state adversaries, you're doing yourself so much good work, Simply by like keeping up to date on that, you know the bugs in that database. Like, just yeah. go and and get it, you know. Like, go and find which ones you know you need to fix, and 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 figure out which one, which ones in that database apply to you. Our entire conversation about Equifax this year would be different if they had done that, and the same with WannaCry, because you know that 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 this uh, vulnerability was known by the time it caused huge disruption. Uh, so, thing that I'd, I'd love to everybody to walk away with is an understanding that uh, you know these nation-state uh, attacks, this uh, they're very important, and you know there's going to be a huge discussion about what to do about them. But the actual tactics they like using uh, vulnerabilities that are known because those are the cheapest to use. You've got the most um, amount of plausible deniability when you use them because you, they could have come from anywhere. Uh, you, you know, your adversary could still theoretically, plausibly be anybody. Uh, and so uh, don't be intimidated by these guys. Pick up the national vulnerabilities database, see what applies to you and freaking lock it down. And, and you'll be doing just so much good work for yourself, even against some of the most sophisticated teams that are out there, because they'll just move on to, uh, you know, uh, targets that forgot to lock the door. You know, assume that the information that you're trying to protect is going to be gone and missing uh, sooner than you're ready for it to be gone and missing. So that's what people, when people today talk about like resilience, that's actually what they've begun having a conversation about, is uh, uh, creating the expectation that uh, your most important data, uh, the, the thing that you're most worried about some cyber intruder stealing, uh, that's the only way to defend it is to assume that you can't (laughs) and come up with strategies to decrease the value of that stolen data the second that it's stolen. Um, Either by, uh, and one aspect of that is uh, acknowledging theft as quickly as it happens. Um, And another aspect of it is to uh, just try and reduce, that's sort of like the story of the Macron hack is is very much that story. so that's, that's the first thing I would say is assume that nothing can be absolutely or permanently just safeguarded. Begin with that assumption and then come up with a strategy that uh, gives you a good defense uh, once you realize that you've been breached so that you can uh, destroy the value of the stolen information. That's something that I think is really important that you're going to see a lot of and that's kind of like the new thinking about what resilience actually is. Uh, And the other thing I would say is, uh, yeah, like I said, even the meanest nation states in the world, they rely on vulnerabilities that are known almost all the time. Uh, So uh, depending on how valuable the information is that you're trying to protect, uh, just go and, like, it's one thing for you and I to not update our iOS because I actually hate the new iOS update. And so, like, that's... (laughs) <laughs> like and as and as many people do it's one thing for us to not update our ios it's another thing for if you're the cio of equifax to have like a, a big bunch of, of vulnerabilities sitting around on uh, architectures or systems that you're in charge of that are actually present in the national vulnerabilities database that you didn't that you didn't uh freaking do anything about so um yeah, don't don't be afraid of uh, zero days compared to stuff that's actually sitting out there and known, and and know where your weakest link is because it's, I don't know, you're not going to be attacked by something that esoteric, even from esoteric actors.
0: Thanks for listening. We'd like to keep in touch on Twitter, so please follow Cloudera at Cloudera, and that's all, folks. My name is TJ Lair, and I look forward to hosting you next time on Cybersecurity on
1: Call.